And can I just say thank you to the committee? I don't know if you heard, they, the date had to change because of my niece's wedding. And apparently the Irish love a wedding. <laughs> so they were happy to change. So I'm really grateful that I uh, could get there. So thank you for that. So today we're, we're going to use the book of James, but we're going to be thinking about our respectable sins. Oh, it's that. Sorry. Um, and we could turn to a thousand different parts of God's word to uncover this problem in us. But for the sake of time and that constant flicking or scrolling on our phones, uh, we're going to use the letter of James. Why? Well, as Dorothy mentioned, he's got a lot to say about it. Uh, James' letter isn't exhaustive on the issue, and I'm sure that some of the principles that we pick up today will be able to then apply to other respectable sins that we see in ourselves. But um, I just know that actually... There are so many. As I've prepared this uh, material, I've been reminded again, and I'm such an expert in this area of respectable sins. And I've mastered a few unrespectable ones too. But as Dorothy, or as Dorothy said, just be warned. By the end of the first two talks, you might just want to go home, even if you've already bought your meal ticket. But we need to hang in there. We've got a serious problem, but there is a, a wonderful solution from the Lord. Um, so I hope... From the end of, by the end of today, we are going to feel like we've benefited from some spiritual heart surgery. Um, so, um, I was going to read a bit of a psalm as a prayer, but I'll, I'll crack on because I think we might um, be short of time. So, what do we mean by respectful sins? We, we may call ourselves a believer in the Lord Jesus. Um, and I think what we tend to do, we tend to evaluate our character and our conduct by comparing ourselves to the moral culture uh, that we live in. And since as Christians, we usually keep a higher moral standard than society at large, we think we're doing pretty well. We're evangelical Christians, aren't we? We know about disobedience. Uh, we know what it costs Jesus so that we could be forgiven, don't we? That's why we don't swear much anymore. Uh, or Nick Byros from work, or uh, we don't have affairs or murder people. That's right, isn't it? And we feel pretty good about ourselves compared to, to them. And we assume that God feels the same way too. But sin is sin. And even though Christ has set us free from the absolute slavery and the eternal consequences of our sin, and even though the Holy Spirit dwells in us, that principle of sin, often in scripture called the flesh, it still lurks within us and it rears its ugly head in our thoughts and our attitudes and our words and our actions. And whether it's large or small in our eyes, it is still heinous in the sight of God. God forgives our sin because of Jesus' blood shed for us, but he doesn't condone it. But because we don't think we're anything like as bad as the world, we often fail to reckon with the reality of that subtle yet deadly sin still dwelling in us. And we allow it to sort of take root and grow in us a bit like a cancer. It's a bit like this. Our hospitals are full of dying people who ignored the onset of their symptoms. They pretended not to notice the drastic weight loss. Uh, they thought if they ignored that lump, it would go away. And that they deceived themselves. And by the time they got to see the specialist, 
It was very, very bad news. Well, James, the expert physician, he, he looks at our lives. He looks at the, the everyday sins. He looks at those ignored, entrenched, tolerated sins. And the outcome of our consultation with James, it is a bit of a shocker because he has a very grim diagnosis and we have to take it seriously. Because he, he runs a few tests and he doesn't give us the spiritual equivalent of cowpole. All of these respectable sins that we choose to ignore or we don't think God notices or cares about, they're actually <coughs> symptoms of a, a deadly disease lying at the very heart of a complacent Christian. And what is that disease? Well, quite simply, James calls it spiritual adultery. If you look down at chapter 4, verse 4, these booklets are going to be really helpful because you can easily flip around. James's book is a bit like an hourglass. I don't know if you noticed how the themes were reflected, uh, like, um, well, yeah, if you, look at, if you look at the book of James, you can see that the themes are reflected either end and then gradually you come down to the middle of the letter and he says this, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's the bottom line. James is going to show us that we, often in very respectable ways, are adulterous. As Christians, we are betrothed to Christ, and yet it's like we're having an affair with the world. Our hearts are divided. James says we are double-minded two-timers, and God hates it. Not because he's like a disappointed parent or a, a disapproving head teacher. No, because he's a jealous lover. James continues, or do you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? As in a failing marriage, the Lord is not always our heartbeat. He's not our waking thought. He's not our reason for living. We're not mindful or aware of him as we speak and act and plan our days. He may get a brief prayer at the start and the end of the day, Otherwise, he's seldom central to our lives. And it breaks his heart. He's rightfully jealous that we run after other lovers. We, we may say we love God, but actually we love ourselves and what the world has to offer much more. And we know from God's word that his will for our lives is twofold. To make us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus and for us to enjoy him, God, forever. But sadly, and I speak for myself, often our will for our lives is very different. What we want is happiness, status, comfort, prosperity, ease and health in our lives. And you see that our hearts are divided, our mind, we are double-minded. We don't think we're doing anything truly terrible, and we're great at excusing ourselves, we're great at self-deception, but look with me, in the first chapter, how many times James warns his readers about deceiving themselves. Just look at chapter 1, verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Chapter 1, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone considers themselves religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on their tongue, they deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. So we need to be aware of our self-deception. 
and get ready to do business with the Lord. And I think we just need to let our guard down and we need to carefully listen to James's diagnosis. So he's going to run some tests and he's going to reveal um, our adulterous hearts and then he's going to apply the scalpel. So let's dive in. Take a breath. Sorry, that was a very grim opening. Let's go. Respectable sin, number one. Doubt and fretting. My wrong attitude towards God in the trials of life. So first, in chapter one, verse two to 17, James looks at how we react to the trials of life. And this test may show up my, my proud, adulterous attitude towards God. So in verses two to four, he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Well, we all face hardship, don't we? Unexpected events that floor us. Relationships fail. Loved ones die. We get ill. We face financial problems. Life just isn't turning out as we thought it would. And we think it wasn't supposed to be like this. Our lives are full of worries and suffering and resentment. And the shock is that James says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, surely he can't be asking us to sort of have a her agreeing on our faces. He can't, he can't pretend to enjoy suffering. No, he's asking us to be joyful because we understand God's purpose behind the trial, which is to produce in us perseverance, which leads to maturity, which is making us more like Christ. Remember, that is God's plan for us, to make us like his son Jesus. Well, the question James asks is, how are you going to deal with trials? He says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, and he will give generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So in the midst of a trial, will you turn to the Lord and ask him for his wisdom, the wisdom to trust him through it, to trust he knows what he's doing, even when we can't see or understand what he's doing. And that is the amazing promise there, that he'll give wisdom in a generous measure to that person. Or... Will you ask for the wisdom and then continue to doubt his goodness, thinking in some perverse way that he's wrong to allow you to suffer like this? Well, don't expect to get anything from the Lord. You see the rebuke in verses uh, 6 to 8. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Verse 8, such person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And when things are tough... It is a real test of our faith, isn't it? How much we truly trust God. Because Satan is always going to be whispering in our ear. Just like Eve in the garden, we are going to be tempted to, to doubt God's goodness. But James says that if we doubt that God's good and that his intentions for us are good in the face of trials, we are going to be double-minded and unstable. Like a wave that's just being tossed around in the wind pulled this way and that. And I think part of the problem is that we resent trials. We, we certainly don't, in James's word, consider them pure joy. No, we live in a blame culture, don't we? Secretly, we want to sort of sue God. We want compensation for losing out on our happiness. We want to blame someone for not making us happy. You know, bad parent, bad 
partner, bad children, bad God. And we set the bar very high in our expectations of other people's behaviour towards us. So when we're let down and things go wrong, uh, we fret and we get anxious and fearful and angry and depressed and withdrawn. So we've got this blame culture. And then we've got, we live in an entitlement culture that tells me that my happiness is a human right. I deserve to be happy. So therefore, my purpose in my life becomes to make me happy. And then I think I can do anything I like to relieve my pain and bring me happiness. And then I set the bar very low for my own behaviour. Even if I disobey people, uh, disobey God and hurt other people in the pursuit of my happiness. And of course, nowhere in the Bible are we promised health and happiness in this life. But we choose to ignore that uncomfortable truth. And we may indulge in sort of self-pity parties um, that sort of feed our resentment and our contentment. Well, James goes on to give an everyday example of an everyday trial, that of our financial and social standing. And James says, here's an area where we're going to be tempted to mistrust God's goodness, where we're likely to be double-minded. Now, most of our lives, aren't they, are taken up with money matters, uh, earning enough to feed ourselves and our families, to create a nice living environment, clothes, holidays, haircuts, whatever. Well, here are two tests. First, the test of poverty. Verse 9, chapter 1, he writes, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. And in our churches, it's going to be very tempting for the poor Christian not to take pride in that high position. What high position, they, they ask? Well, if you flip over to chapter 2, verse 5, James writes this. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he's promised to those who love him? It sounds odd to us, doesn't it? But actually, Christians who are poor in the eyes of the world can learn in reality what it means to trust God to provide what they need. And there are countless testimonies of God providing for his children in need just what is necessary and just at the right time. And it's a virtuous circle because as they exercise their faith in God and they see him provide, their faith grows stronger and they learn perseverance, they become more like Jesus. And then, what an amazing inheritance the poor Christian has waiting for them beyond the grave. Because of Christ's ultimate poverty and humiliation, he has won for them the kingdom of heaven. <coughs> Jesus knows about humble circumstances. And what an amazing inheritance the poor Christian has waiting for them. But will they believe it? Or will they proudly, be proudly double-minded? Will they actually feel hard done by, not content, secretly envious of those who have more? And the temptation's obvious, isn't it? We live in a, a culture that says, how gorgeous are you? How clever are you? How popular are you? How rich are you? So as Christian women, we are going to be tempted to believe that it's those things that are really important. But actually, we are fools if we fall for the trap of caring what the world thinks is worthwhile whilst ignoring God's assessment of what is valuable. The poor and lowly are so precious to him, but will we believe that? And then uh, we've got the, riches of test, uh, the test of riches in verse 10. 
but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. So it would appear that the trials faced by the rich are harder than poverty. We don't believe that, do we? I'd quite like to have a go. <laughs> the trial of being rich, we think, it must be pure joy uh, to have a few extra grand. But of course riches are dangerous because the world says that money is security. Life's not so hard when you've got a bit of dosh. And it's going to be so tempting for the rich Christian and in the world's terms, that includes most of us, to be putting our trust firmly in our pension schemes, in our savings, in our insurance policies. That is a respectable sin. James says you've got it all wrong. You need to take pride in your low position. You are not secure without Christ. Your security in this world is not security beyond the grave. It will all just get blown away like a poppy in a field. So we Christians who live in uh, this green and pleasant land, we're good at talking like God trusters. But actually, how much of our security is tied up with our worldly wealth? I've got an ISA. Have you got an ISA? Mine bounces up and down like a, a, a... Sort of Red Bull on a yo-yo on Red Bull, whatever. It just goes up and down and up and down. And it's my sort of future security and I get so cross. I'm like, Ugh. well, what's that all about? How much of my time and if I'm married, my husband's time is taken up earning just a little bit more to make my life more comfortable, more secure? When actually we could be using that time to be useful to God. When you think of retirement, do you think, woohoo, more time to do gospel work? Or do you think, well, hey, more time to go on a saga cruise? Or are you as self-deceptive as me? And I think, woohoo, way he, I can go on a saga cruise and witness to all the over 50s that are there. James says, you need to beware. You are in danger. The only thing a rich person has to be proud of is that she's a servant of God. The thing that makes a person blessed in this world will not last. So let's not evaluate our lives uh, by what God says. So let's evaluate our lives by what God says is a blessing, not by what the world says. And in verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So we need to ask ourselves, and please do jot stuff down as we go, what are my respectable sins here? What is my attitude to my financial situation? Do I say God is good, but actually resent my position? Do I say I trust God, but actually put my active trust elsewhere? If it all went up in smoke, could I still say God is good? So... Flip over to chapter two, respectable sin at number two, my wrong attitude towards others. Um, And it's actually uh, related um, to the last test. He runs another diagnostic test and it's the respectable sin hidden in our attitude to other people. How are you doing on the favouritism front? Do you treat people as Jesus would. Do you look at people with Jesus' eyes or with haughty eyes? I may say I belong to the family of God and then act in a way that denies that. So in chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, 
must not show favouritism. So James sets up the facts at the beginning. Jesus is the glorious one. He is the source of glory. He's the one who decides what is valuable and worthy. And yet he showed no favouritism in his earthly ministry. He hung out with the absolute no-hopers of society. And he now shows no social favouritism in who he chooses to belong to his family, be they rich or poor. But this respectable sin of favouritism, it reveals this disease of proud double-mindedness because it rears its ugly head in the way we judge each other. And he says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is saying, if I in any way judge somebody by external factors, judging what is worthy or unworthy by someone's appearance or their social standing, I'm denying Jesus. I'm committing two of the proud, double-minded sins. I'm acting as if I'm God, judging between people, and I'm breaking God's law of love. He's the only one who decides who's who. And it's nothing to do with wealth and status. So how do we discriminate in our relationships, in our churches? What does it actually look like? See, it could be based on wealth, but it could also be based on class or race or age. But it's shown in the way we do church. Have you ever stepped back and looked at your church services through the eyes of an outsider of someone from the wrong end of town? How much of what we do is actually about middle-class respectability and nothing to do with the gospel how many barriers have we erected in our churches to stop anyone whoever they are feeling welcome and comfortable and it's not something we admit to openly we probably wouldn't say to someone a bit shabby in church oi stinker can you just go and sit over there by that open door no it's just quietly shown in the way we act in the way we set up our services and our buildings. It's shown in the people that we choose to spend time with, people we choose to sit with, how we speak to people we perceive to be somehow beneath us, how we politely patronise them. I did a classic the other day. We run a food bank cafe cafe off the back of the food bank. And each week, a lady from the housing office comes in. And last week, a woman came. And she was pierced and tattooed within an inch of her life. And she had the most extraordinary dreadlocks I've ever seen. And her clothing was quite eclectic. Now, I did my bit and I went and asked if they both wanted a cup of tea. Now, to the untrained ear, I may not have sounded any different. But I'm sure that if someone had done a voice analysis, I was talking to that woman in a patronising way. And even if you couldn't hear it, I know what was going on in my heart. Because I was definitely thinking it. Anyway, as you've probably guessed... She was the top housing officer for Cornwall Council. <laughs> classic, just classic. And it, the sickening thing is it changed my, completely changed my attitude towards her. It's outrageous, it's disgusting. You see the problem? Uh, whatever I was doing on, thought I was doing on the outside to cover my prejudice, it was all going on at the heart level. 
And perhaps at church, we love to be associated with the in crowd, to be friends with those in high places, to name drop the famous Christians we've met. Maybe we think we are the in crowd. Do we treat nice, respectable visitors or preachers with more honesty and with more honour than the passing oddball who just wants to cup a tea and to recharge his phone? We call it protocol, don't we? Jesus calls it evil discrimination. We call it respect where respect is due. Jesus calls it merciless law-breaking. If you show favouritism, verse 9, you sin and are convicted as lawbreakers. So would we go out of our way to befriend, and I mean befriend, not patronise, someone in church who is awkward and chippy and dresses funny and doesn't even seem to like us? Or is our friendship group made up of entirely somebodies who are like us and actually like us? Jesus isn't interested in our definition of worthy. He's looking for sinners to save, be they rich or poor. He is looking for recipients of his grace, and that includes all of us. None of us are worth anything without Christ. So if we show partiality, we just haven't understood the mercy and the grace that has been shown to us. And if we play God and judge people in this way, we're lawbreakers. We may say we're obedient children of God, but actually we're as bad as murderers and adulterers. Look at verses 9 and 11 of chapter 2. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. And we think to ourselves, oh, it's not that serious. And Jesus says, yes, it is. Yes, it is. We may think in terms of individual laws and respectable penalty, and their, and their sort of respective penalties, some being much worse than others. But God's law is seamless. It's seamless. And in subtle ways, we like to play God, always putting sins in a nice hierarchy with the big ones at the top, like sexual immorality, and the respectable ones we do at the bottom. But we're double-minded when we choose to ignore our respectable sins. And our favouritism and our judgmentalism, they put us in grave danger. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. If we don't show mercy, we've missed the point, And we're in danger of missing out on God's mercy. And then in this section, like these bookends again, just turn over to chapter 5 when Paul, uh, James again talks about our treatment of the poor. Uh, I won't read it all out again, but chapter 5, just 1 to 6, run your eye over those verses. It's pretty grim reading. Verse 5, if we are those who have spent our time accumulating wealth and laying up uh, treasures for our last days, wallowing in a sort of self-indulgent, uh, lifestyle, feeling powerful and secure, whilst neglecting the poor around us, we are condemned by James's words. Are you like me? Do you ever bother to check uh, which companies our shares and investments are being ploughed into? How many of us have gone on spending money on certain clothes from certain companies, even when we know that the people who've made them earn a pittance and live in squalor? How many of us go on drinking coffee that comes from companies with appalling reputations for fair trade because the other stuff actually is getting better, <laughs> but the other stuff often tastes ropey? Isn't it my right to have nice coffee? James says, no, it's not. 
We just don't think our Christianity needs to stretch that far, as if God won't notice. And if we are Christians who have in any way exploited the poor and powerless in our striving to be wealthy, we are condemned by James's words. The comfortable and luxurious lives we live, they're described, if you look in those verses, as fattening our hearts for the day of slaughter. What is the end of this body that we lovingly care for? We tan it, adorn it, nurse it, pamper it, feed it, starve it, feed it, starve it. <laughs> but it too it is travelling unavoidably towards a coffin. And James uses this picture of a cow sort of feeding itself, sort of placidly chewing the cud, taking just another mouthful, whilst out of sight the butcher sharpens his knife. What is the end of riches? Verses 2 and 3 is destruction. And we don't mean to harm anybody, do we? But where wealth is pursued, justice is injustice is never far behind. And if we are lovers of material wealth to the detriment of the poor amongst us, we are in serious danger. And this leads neatly into respectable sin number three. And I think we're running out of time. I'm going to crack on. Okay. So, James runs another test. Uh, Selfish desire, number three, my wrong attitude towards myself. And this, again, uh, uncovers another respectable sin. And again, it's linked to poverty and riches. But this test may show my proud, adulterous heart affecting the way I think God and others should treat me. So, I'm not going to read the verses because we're running out of time. But can you run your eye over chapter 4? Verses 1 to 3. What causes fights and quarrels amongst you? It is a universal constant that when a human has their uh, desires frustrated, it will lead to violence. Not getting what I want sets me against others. Now, in children, it's out in the open. Many of us will have children of varying ages who will go to any lengths to get what they want, ranging from whinging through crying to outright warfare. Okay? And they're very quick to point out and complain bitterly about any sniff of an unfair distribution of uh, family resources. So when I uh, unexpectedly got pregnant with Beatrice, the first thing my 12-year-old son was like, Ugh. and then he went, hang on, does that mean I only get a third of my inheritance? <laughs> I said, a third of nothing, still nothing. Yeah, you're right, absolutely. But as we mature... Uh, we become much cleverer, don't we, at covering our frustration or getting our own ways. We try and hide our envy. But it shows in our eyes and it eats away at our joy. And eventually, selfish desire will lead to discord somewhere. We may not murder anyone with a knife, but we'll have done the equivalent in our thoughts and it will eventually show in the way we treat people. Our envies, our put-downs, boasting, slandering, whatever it is. So there's another test. Am I envious of others' wealth? Do I secretly resent someone having something that I want? Do we cover other people's stuff? I was coveting Dorothy's air fryer thing last night. But do we cover their gifts, their appearance, their status? Because secretly, we think we deserve that instead of them. Do I allow the world to seduce me into wanting more and more stuff? 
Do I drown myself in advertising, buying their lies? I'm 57 and I still believe if I just found the perfect white t-shirt or the perfect pair of boots, my life would be complete. <laughs> this is the fashion item that will completely transform me. Into what? I don't know, but I'd buy it anyway. And it's that worldly mindset, isn't it? That, tr that proud double-mindedness that makes me think, I deserve to be happy. I deserve to look good. I deserve to be admired for who I am. And then, I don't know if you spotted it as it was read earlier, look at verse 3 of chapter 4. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you can spend what you get on your pleasures. We shouldn't expect God to listen to our self-pity and praise. If all we want from him is more wealth to spend on ourselves. So, as we finish this first set of tests, revealing our respectable sins, let's just think. Test number one, ask yourself, does my reaction to trials reveal a wrong attitude to God? A double-mindedness that is not God-trusting. Test number two, does my treatment of the rich and poor reveal a wrong attitude to others? A heart which is judgmental and condemning. Does my attitude to wealth reveal a heart that is callous towards the needs of others? And then test number three, does my attitude towards myself reveal a heart which is proud and envious of others, leading to fights and quarrels? It all boils down, doesn't it, to our proud little egos, which think far too highly of themselves and actually have a very, very small view of God and others. So in our next session, if you're still here, if you haven't gone home, uh, James is going to continue with the diagnosis. But please, can we just bear with the discomfort? I know we, we just don't like it, do we? So over your loo break, don't be going, oh, it's just the way I am, or oh, we'll be fine. Let's just let's feel the discomfort before we let each other off the hook. Um, and I think I'm going to... Have we got time to pray? Yeah, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do find this very uncomfortable because these are sins we are so comfortable with. Um, we don't like to think about how we use our money. We don't like to think about how we treat people. Holy Spirit, would you do business with us, we pray. Please, would you be doing heart surgery on us today? Um, please don't let us wriggle off the hook. Help us to be honest uh, before you and with ourselves, we pray. Amen. In your books, there's a head, heart, has. Do write stuff down. Um, because if you're anything like me, you'll forget it within moments. Um, so do write things that you um, have been challenged about and that need to change. Thanks so much, Lizzie.